Welcome to Arash's World. Today we have a very special guest and uh, an absolutely stunning topic that's very close to my heart. And so uh, welcome to Arash's World, Rabbi Matthew Ponak. Thank you for having me here, Arash. Great. Um, so before we get started uh, uh, talking about your book, um, I'd like you to briefly introduce yourself in any way you see fit. And that is uh, that is the toughest questions to start up with. And then the next <laughs> ones will be easier as we go along. Sure. Well, I am a rabbi, which means I'm ordained as a leader of the Jewish religion. And what I specialize in is a translation of Jewish wisdom for people of any background. And specifically with my book that just came out, Embodied Kabbalah, it's about Jewish spiritual and mystical wisdom that has to do especially with living a balance between our regular lives, if you will, and our spiritual lives and finding that harmony uh, in our world. That's wonderful. So your book is Embodied uh, Kabbalah, Jewish Mysticism for All People. And you mentioned that, and I love it that you're making this wisdom accessible to everyone. And so, and that is something where we often don't feel. It feels like there are only certain people who have access to it, but by by translating it, by commenting on it, by choosing these uh, specific stories and these uh, uh, these texts uh, uh, and explaining it in your book, uh, you make it uh, accessible to us all. Absolutely, that's that's the whole point. And I I think there are reasons why people keep some spiritual teachings and practices secret, so to speak, and and often it's because they're very powerful or. Because if they if they got into the wrong hands, they could be used for manipulation. Also, they can harm people if people aren't careful and wise in how they're using them. And, and so one of the reasons I felt good and okay, quite frankly, with sharing this so widely is because the, the book isn't about transcending the earthly plane. It's really about finding that sweet spot between deep spiritual engagement and regular, ordinary responsibilities and fun and, and work-life balance, if you will. I love that. And so it's it's really, and, and the embodied part shows that because the Kabbalah would think of something like very mysterious, something that's far away, that's probably not accessible to, or to very few people. And what you're doing is you're bringing it down to earth, which I find fascinating. And just to give you a bit of background about myself, as when I was studying uh, Buddhism, for me, I felt like I wanted to become a monk. I wanted to move to a monastery and, and reach enlightenment and so on. But then I thought again, I was like, well, if you want to reach enlightenment, why not do so living your ordinary life and do it here instead of in a remote, secluded place? And so that really spoke to me of bringing the holy into our, our ordinary life, which is something that you're looking at. Precisely. And I, I understand the monastic urge. I've had it as well. I've, I've done a lot of exploring before I became a rabbi. And also, now that I am a rabbi, it's not like I've stopped exploring either. I, I, I've i learned from many different traditions and, and disciplines, and I, I include those in my teaching. And that's part of the reason why I want to open this up to everyone, because I, I'm, I feel really a member of this global spiritual landscape. But what of the one of the things I find so special and I hesitate to say unique because there's so many different traditions and lineages out there, but it's rare, certainly, to find a tradition that is, it's for householders. It's for people, not necessarily who own homes, right? That's harder and harder these days, mm -hmm. but for people who have dependents they're caring for, are working or have responsibilities outside of a monastery, let's say, because Judaism hasn't had monks 
pretty much ever in our history. And so our spiritual development and our spiritual paths and methods are really in the context of people living in this world and engaging with society. That is very interesting because I actually hadn't thought of that. You know, the, the monastic life and so on, it does apply to various uh, major world religions. But uh, the idea is, I think, to stop the distractions, to really focus on the spiritual aspect. But this comes at the expense of the body and the life we have. And so what I see with like uh, uh, with Catholic tradition, Christian traditions, is that that kind of like... Um, basic hatred of the body or that kind of like this the spirit is the main thing the soul and you want to purify the body and it's like kind of like seen as as some sort of punishment that we have to deal with this life to get to the next one and i disagree with that well you know the term spirituality back in the day was the opposite of corporeality which meant physicality that those two things were seen as separate so the idea of an embodied a body-based spirituality is kind of a paradox which i think is really interesting and i don't want to misportray the history of judaism we have had our share of ascetics of people who wanted to move beyond the body and those kinds of things but one of the wonderful things about studying a religion in depth, which I got to do in my uh, studies to become a rabbi, is you get to see all the nuances there. And in every generation, I think it's incumbent upon religious leaders to bring forth the teachings that are most relevant and most helpful. And so I have selected embodiment texts, body-based, grounded texts from the last thousand years, essentially, of Jewish mysticism in order to portray that particular much needed method and 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 lesson about that balance right there are certainly schools of jewish mysticism also not to also go the opposite direction that are very much body centered and how where it really emphasized that um for example the hasidic movement in its beginnings in eastern europe in the 1700s was saying that we that god is everywhere including in our bodies and we don't need to to move beyond this world to find god and that was relatively rare and special for that time to say it so boldly but you'll you'll find a mix and the important thing really in this project is to is to highlight and emphasize the elements which i think are most helpful for people wanting to find that balanced way mm -hmm. and when we find mysticism it's it's like when when you read the mystic text the text it has like it's the same thing often it's like all these roads that are and people take different paths and that's why again i, I like it that you say for all people and you might get to the same location, but using a different path. And, and it's not unique to that one tradition. But once you get there, I find it's like a common language. So some of the, the, the things you describe in, in your book, I, I can perfectly relate to. But mine was more the experience of first like of, of Zen, where they say like mountains are mountains, and then mountains are not mountains. And then you go back to them being mountains. And it's 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 different when you read about them and you understand it intellectually, but when you experience that, it's 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 life changing. And in fact, that exact teaching is found on one of the pages of my book because I have comparative sections. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a teaching from Rebbe Nachman of Bratislav, who was late 1700s, early 1800s, really profound mystic. He was he died at a very young age, but he wrote these incredible writings that are like getting more more popular basically every year it seems. And one of the things. He says is there's there's these stages in the spiritual development that, you know, what might start off as sort of ordinary reality, we get into these magical realms after that. But after those magical realms, things are taking this other shift. 
And the way he describes it, it's sort of beyond all of those mystical levels. There's something profound, which some people describe as equanimity or nothingness or emptiness or just the ordinariness of all existence in this profound way. And so I included that teaching that you just cited from Zen on that page because it has resonance. And I, I'm not someone who wants to pigeonhole traditions and say, this is this and this is that. But there are ways in which mystical strivers and seekers will find uh, teachings aligning with them as they're exposing themselves to different cultures and traditions. What, what you also mentioned, though, which I found fascinating, I hadn't thought about that myself, is that kind of gradually getting there and getting used to the light. And so in, in if you look at Zen again, it's like Satori or enlightenment, that it hits you and suddenly you get everything. And that's actually not always the best way. It probably is not the best way. What you want is kind of integrating those experiences, incorporating, and specifically the word incorporate with your body so that it becomes part of your, your being. And I think of Plato's cave too. It's like he suddenly walks out in this bright light and he sees everything and he's excited, but that didn't go so well. And others could not respond to that because we need a kind of a, a movement in that direction, like stepping stones as well. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you're referring to the text by Midrash uh, Rabbeinu Bachia, where he says... Just that, that it's maybe not so wise or possible or healthy to just go from zero to infinity all at yeah. once that we can have an experience that actually might be in a small way kind of fracturing or, or challenging. And that's okay. It's like working out our muscles <laughs> after we put the weights down and we feel some pain. And then our muscles are actually growing and healing so we can lift more next time. But if we pick up the, the heaviest barbell on day one, we might injure ourselves. And that's he, he ends that teaching by saying the way that the body works is the way that the soul works. Mm -hmm. They follow the same set of rules. We have to take time to integrate. And I think that really relates, uh, Arash, to the sense of the householder responsibilities because it's possible to injure ourselves, to injure our minds if we go too fast. And it's yeah. someone, I know the story from the, the intro of The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, where he says he spent about two years on a park bench just in bliss before he, as he was kind of integrating that initial experience. And maybe that could work for someone who didn't have dependence. But if someone is, again, participating in a way that they're they have a job. They need to show up on time. They need to pay their taxes. They need to care for their children or their animals or something or their be show up for their spouse. Two years on a park bench is going to be a really tough sell in that situation. So part of the integrated method is actually keeping that in mind is that we can't blow our brains out <laughs> to be a kind of extreme about it. We have to find that way forward where we can we can stay stay here uh, while also following those paths of transformation. But this is a challenge for many people, and especially if we're looking at our current generation where we want quick results. And so I think technology has made that worse because, uh, uh, and I, I just had a class where, where I talked about how technology has changed. Where we, the internet, when you go on a website, it would take 20 minutes for the page to load. And we were fine with that. Or you had to make a choice between do I choose the phone or do I choose the internet? Because you couldn't have both at the same time. But now, nowadays, it's it's gotten even worse. So I'm worried about people who would go for drugs and say, this is the quick path, but without, and you get a glimpse of things, and I, I, maybe you can share your, uh, your thoughts on it, and which is pretty mind-boggling and mind-opening, but that's not it, because you do have to do the heavy lifting to get there. It's just like a glimpse. 
I, I think it is possible for people engaging with psychedelics in a guided space, in a well-held place, not just to have experience of, let's say, transcendence, but also take time to integrate them. And it probably will often bring stuff up that was hidden. And that's a great opportunity to look at what's going on inside of us. And I think, again, in the right context, that can be incredibly powerful, just like if people have a, a tendency towards mystical moments without psychedelics, the same thing can happen if they view it as an opportunity to just experience the cosmos for its own sake. There is something really beautiful about that. And I don't want to denigrate it, but at the same time, if they're not taking time to integrate and reflect and see what's arisen from that, they could actually miss some of the content that's surfaced. And so some of the work that follows that is important as well. What what comes to mind, though, is this sort of instant enlightenment or our desire to have, oh, I'm going to yeah. type in enlightenment to chat GPT and uh, it'll be done. That kind of thing. They're the one, not the one, but the, the beautiful component in Jewish mysticism is that we have Shabbat. We have this day of rest and refreshment. This, uh, to quote a colleague and a, a really a wonderful author of mine is um, Marilyn Paul. She wrote a book called An Oasis in Time, and it's a guide to a personalized Sabbath practice. And it, it her and other teachers right now are talking about it doesn't have to be one day a week. It could be in the evening. It could be a moment here or there. But the idea of tapping into this feeling like everything is good, everything is complete, we can punctuate our lives with moments like that. And that in its best sense is that kind of instant enlightenment moment that if someone is practicing that Shabbat mindset, the via positiva, you could call it the, and to quote Eckhart, or Meister Eckhart, a Christian mystic, this sense of cultivating the good and arriving. And yeah, we're going to come out of that. And we're going to go back to the spiritual work or the actual physical work we're doing in the world. But we, we can have both. I don't think it has to be either or. And I, I think if everyone has this need or this impulse towards completion and finality and built into the landscape of Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism is there's moments for that. There's moments where we're, all we're doing is cultivating through these various ways, physically, spiritually, getting together with people, singing songs of joy. That is part of that satisfying that urge to feel like we've made it and that can flow into the rest of our week and the rest of our lives. I love that. But what, what we're seeing today is also mindfulness and people are yoga and people are choosing those paths, which is a great thing. I think it does awaken, awaken several parts of uh, our connection with, uh, with also spirituality and the divine in our lives. But what I'm worried about is that it, some people use it as an escape. Right. So as something like, you know, I get away and I have my break, like going on vacation and that's it. And others are are looking at it, but in a, in a very like limited way. So they take away that that spiritual aspect and kind of a disembodied way of like, OK, this is good for the brain. And to me, that's like, I don't know, like using like uh, cannabis without THC. And in, in the sense <laughs> it's like, you know, you're missing out an important vital aspect of it. And uh, um, and what I like in, in psychology, the transpersonal psychology, where we are looking at the psyche and people like Otto Rank talk about the psyche, the soul and so on. It's coming into the discussion, but it's still like people are hesitant and uh, the, the experts and professional and psychologists are hesitant to embrace that in many cases, too. There's a lot of benefit that has been gained from extracting mindfulness from its Buddhist monastic origins and distilling it for people 
pretty much anywhere to make use of without feeling religious, quote unquote, or anything yeah. like that. And that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And I've talked to Buddhist teachers recently who have said, yeah, and wouldn't it be nice if compassion was emphasized more the way that we treat each other from those mindful yeah. moments. And similarly, I think what you're saying, it can feel like a vacation. And as I was just saying with Shabbat, that's a great, it's great to have vacation time. But if all we're doing in our spiritual lives is cultivating this sense of transcendence or bliss or even calm and moving beyond, we're actually missing an essential ingredient, which is the deep inner work. That That's what I would call spiritual work as opposed to spiritual rest. <laughs> and spiritual work involves actually confronting things and understanding that if I'm feeling off, it's not a matter of soothing myself. It's actually, maybe there's something misaligned that's arisen in me. Maybe it's from childhood or maybe it's from that horrible conversation I had yesterday or that, you know, some combination. And when we can do that spiritual work, it's called work because it's hard and we have to face parts of ourselves. But it's the difference between giving somebody a compliment to make the dynamic feel better, which can be great. And being honest with someone about something that you've done to wrong them or they've done to wrong you and in hopes of actually repairing the relationship at a deeper level. That's the difference right there. And they're both needed. The, the last thing I'll say on this topic is sometimes we're so triggered in our work lives or in our non-bliss modes, let's say, that we actually need some mindfulness type practice to settle ourselves down so we can then go deeper. And I think they can complement each other. But I agree with, with what I think you were sharing, which is sometimes the mindfulness in the most, let's say, focus on your breath, calm yourself down. If that's all the practice is, it's it's a wonderful introduction to the potentials. But I think something else is needed uh, to to deepen that and and to move people to to what's next. Yeah, and and also the the concept of spirituality for me, it's like, and I like the mystics because they 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 use the the example of wine, for example, the ones I've read, and like wine as in like the actual drinking of wine, which is fine, but also as something like beyond that, or even uh, sexual intimacy, and uh, we we have that, and it's not like uh, in various traditions where it's really frowned upon and it's like a sin and all that. And I, I, I like the mystics because they are like really open to those pleasures of life as well as, again, doing the work, uh, as, as you're saying. And for me, it was a psychoanalysis that really like said, you need to look at these things. You need to get rid of these obstacles. And then what happens is it clears the way for the divine and the spiritual to, to enter when you get rid of those, those uh, blockages that we all carry within ourselves. Yeah, it's like what that famous quote from Rumi, something along the lines of it's not about sort of bringing more love in. It's about clearing the blockages between yeah, us yeah. and love. Yeah. yeah, there's I mean, there's a metaphor that's spoken of by a very early Kabbalist, Abraham Abu Lafia, and he says something along the lines of it's about untying the knots of the soul. Mm -hmm. And and I, I've understood uh, through a, a friend of mine who's a historian of science that the word soul and the word mind hundreds of years ago was really often used interchangeably. It was our inner worlds. And so not everyone likes the word soul. That's fine. We could say mind. We can say inner inner world. I think it's just about the layers of the self inside of us, really. And yeah, it is about understanding what's gotten clogged up or what's gotten in the way. And as we come to those places where we really, the inner world, it's about understanding what's gone wrong. It's not about shifting or changing intentionally. Once we get a glimpse of the truth of an element of ourselves, it tends to shift and change and, and adapt on its own. 
And we were often driven by fear, though, and by worry. And so we were kind of often on autopilot. And I find uh, myself was I was like that, too, where you miss out on so much uh, beauty that is around us. So I take a walk and I'm just obsessing with my work or what's going to happen and worrying about tomorrow or worrying about the past. And once you let that go in many ways, then you can see the, the beauty that surrounds us and you can notice the ducks and you can hear the birds singing. But when we're not, we miss out on all of those things. And one thing that I've also found is like synchronicity, events that don't make a lot of sense, but are pushing me in a certain direction or guiding me, not pushing, guiding me in, a, in the right direction in my life. And that has made a tremendous impact on, on my life as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have a lot of content that's flying at us in our world. And most people or a lot of people listening to podcasts, at least, they tend to live in cities more often. And it's harder to get in touch with just the wilderness or the the beauty of it all. And one of the keys to a lot of this, and this is, I mean, it's mentioned on at least one of the pages in my book, but it's it's quite universal. You'll find it in a lot of places that we should be aware of what we're taking in, not just what we're eating, but what what we're hearing and what we're seeing, that these things have an impact. And I think a lot about phones and how ubiquitous they are right now. They're everywhere. And the the news really should be called the bad news because that's what it's, it is. It's what's wrong with the world. And I, I'm really happy to live in a, a country and a society more broadly that has freedom of the press. That's extremely important. And I try to limit myself because the news exposure, those kinds of things, it can can get me down, social media, notifications. So part of a practice for refreshment in the Shabbat sense, but also just for living well, more broadly speaking, is about putting the phone away and turning it off mm-hmm. and, and going for a walk and allowing that to fall away as we can engage with something more inherently beautiful and positive because there's a lot to be thankful for, really, in our world right now. Yes. Yes, and it doesn't seem like that when we just follow the news or we look what's uh, happening around us. But there is so much good too. And so about living well, I like it how uh, there is this movement in psychology to to really improve. Like Maslow, really, I thought I think got the ball rolling in many ways of like self actualization. To me, that is really close to connecting with with something beyond us. Like, uh, Mm. uh, um, uh, and so that kind of growth. Uh, that uh, that it's personal, but also spiritual growth, and that uh, looking at that, or even the peak and flow experiences. To me, that's like that's just like it. That's exactly it. When you're in a peak, you you're in a mystic state, in a mystical state as well. Yeah, and just the fact that so Maslow right correlated uh, peak experiences with the with the stage of self actualization. And the fact that there are so many people in our society that have the potential for self-actualization <laughs> yeah. is something remarkable and to be to appreciate and be thankful for. We, in those ways, are living the dreams of so many of our ancestors who didn't have basic safety and security and food. And even if not everyone has access to all the medicine they'd like right now, there are I don't want to belittle anyone's experience if they don't agree with this, but we have so much that our ancestors had been striving for. And the news and social media algorithms are tremendously good at getting us to forget that and think like we don't have enough. But the self-actualization, yeah, that you could basically define that in the Kabbalistic language, peak experience is what the Hasidim called devekut, 
which means connecting or cleaving with the infinite. And it's those moments that if we can prime ourselves, right? You can never, you, you can lead the soul to the, to, to the divine, but you can't make them cleave. You know, there's a, there, we can't make it happen, so to speak, but we can increase the likelihood that we're going to have these magical moments. And that's through, yeah, through getting our bases taken care of and then engaging with the beautiful and the wonderful in the very most simple way. Yeah, and it, it is around us. It is already around us. And so we are often looking for something that we think is, is far away, is outside, but it's already here. So I, I like also how you talk about the holy embedded in the ordinary and of like, because we're driven, I, I used to be driven by the sky's the limit and you can go past it. But yes, but we also want to be firmly grounded in reality and in the present in our daily life. So that kind of like combination of both, not it's not one or the other. It's you want both in your life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember reading a, a book about the life of the Buddha. It wasn't written by a Buddhist. And I remember it was at the Buddhist school I went to and the professor saying, well, this isn't written by a Buddhist. What do you think that means? How does that impact the writing? But the, the teaching that I remember was that the Buddha explored these different levels of meditation, these different states of mind and found that the more profound ones actually weren't the most helpful for realization. And so ended up somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. And when I think about true joy and true bliss in life, it's actually being with loved ones, friends and family, eating good food, hanging out, just having a wonderful, like a barbecue. To me, that is enlightenment. That is a taste of heaven on earth. And I, I am thankful that I've had encounters with profound bliss states on my journey, but really where I ended up landing, at least in this point, is just appreciating the fine, subtle, wonderful everyday joys. And to me, that is the most refreshing, uh, gratitude filled, wonderful experience that I can have. Yeah. So I remember again about Zen because that was uh, uh, the tradition I was very interested in. And and, and I th I see its limits as well. Not just saying, yeah, that I am a Zen because I'm not. But sure, Well, they uh, all have I, limits, I thought, right? I could, yeah. I could talk about limits of Kabbalah if you want. Oh, there you go. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but what I liked a lot was this this one quote about uh, I think uh, a person who would uh, reach enlightenment and said like it's you basically do your daily life like you would say doing the dishes and meeting your friends and so on but slightly higher a few inches above the ground and that's I think for me really encapsulates what I think is important is like yes go back to your daily life but see like uh, you've been outside of Plato's cave you've come back and now you your whole world has changed even though how I act, what I say is exactly the same or who I hang out with is the same, but I have profoundly changed because of those experiences. Yeah, and I, I don't, I haven't studied that much Zen exactly. Uh, per, you know what I mean? I have, I've studied Buddhist philosophy. It's, I, have, I have been more exposed to Tibetan Buddhism, but it's hard to not be exposed to Zen if you're a spiritual seeker today. One of the ways, there's almost a question that I have. So, there are forms, you could say, of Jewish enlightenment. There's several texts in the book that talk about different types of realization. But the general thrust in the tradition is that as long as we're here, we've got work to do. There's no perfection. There's no ultimate end. And so I think about that cave metaphor that someone can glimpse the, the light outside the cave and come back, but they're still working on stuff, right? There's it's It's... Maybe they're working the way they work on stuff is different than they used to in some way. But I I, I don't know if that's truly a difference between Zen and Kabbalah as I'm articulating it. But just to say, 
a householder tradition, you're going to notice when no matter how profoundly realized someone is, yeah, they're human and they're going to mess up sometimes. They're going to have bad days. That's part of being in the muck of, of ordinary reality. So I, I wonder if a monastic tradition, if that, if those kinds of attitudes of a permanent state, let's say, would exist if they were truly among the people all day, every day. And I don't have the answer. I don't know that many enlightened Zen monks uh, or people who would ever claim that they were. But just to say there's something important for me uh, as a teacher of Jewish wisdom to say that people are people and we're never done the work uh, on ourselves, uh, let alone the whole globe while we're incarnated in this in these bodies. Yeah, and when we look at the Christianity, so with, with, with Jesus himself, who is the divine, but then he's also struggling, and there is that kind of element, and there's doubt as well, and there's like, uh, where he contradicts himself too, so, uh, and to me, that is kind of like quite interesting, because then you would have the divine, but within the body, and experimenting the whole uh, human potential, and uh, the human suffering, and the confusion, and the doubts, and to not be led astray by by that, but I mean, you have an example who is, you know, that people follow it with Christianity, who is struggling as well. So the struggle is not a bad thing, and it's it's actually necessary, and it's probably constant even to the day we to our deathbed. It's a constant struggle. And uh, yes, and that's when I think about that. There's a part of me that gets kind of sad. You know, it's oh, don't shouldn't we? What can we perfect this realm? And at the end of the day, we don't know what the future holds. And that's okay, but I come back to this idea of Shabbat, this idea of, of the celebration and really getting into a headspace as a regular practice and a heart space and a body space where we feel amazing and we feel like it's all done. And that, that to me, there, there's a metaphor of if someone was walking with a limp and they weren't able to walk straight and they tried and they tried and they tried, eventually they'd probably just give up trying to do that. But what if one day a week, they could walk perfectly straight and they could get a taste of what they're really working for. They'd never give up hope. And that's that's one of the essential teachings for me about that Shabbat mindset is it's supposed to feel like the world has been perfected and we have been too. Uh, and whether or not we ever all get there, we get there for ourselves, but there's something beautiful. We get to experience enlightenment, so to speak, and, and the perfection of the world on a regular basis. That's just such a wonderful balm and addition and, and delightful dessert to our uh, creative and work-filled lives. And to go back to our regular lives too, because then you that state, I don't think it will be very interesting too. I, I find okay, yes, you're enlightened, but what now? So what? What do I do with this? Right. So for me, it's it's that. But I liked it. I really like how, how you're saying like have that that time where you connect with it and uh, connect with uh, yourself and the divine and your surroundings, but then go back and go through your regular life. So I was wondering what else in the Kabbalah specifically that you would like to share here with our audience of like in terms of how it's helping to, to get there and specific to the tradition of the Kabbalah. Well, one of the, the central teachings has, has to do with, work week consciousness and it has to do with the hope of difficulty and difficult moments there's a teaching that when things fracture within ourselves or even when we're just experienced difficulty that we can break down and that's okay. And that can be part of a transformative process. It's compared to the way that if you have a grape 
and then you crush it. It actually becomes grape juice. And if you leave it for long enough, it ferments and it becomes wine. Mm. And in Jewish cult culture and tradition, there's a, there are certain blessings that are said over certain foods. And there is a hierarchy based on how specific they are. And there's no more specific blessing. There's one that's equal to it, but the two most specific blessings, one of them is over wine and one of them is over bread. And, and both of those come out of a process of breaking something down and then fermenting it and transforming it. So that is how we can be as well. The, the, the hope is that if something comes our way that's really difficult and we can go through that and we can be conscious and get the supports that we need, but we don't have to return back to neutral at the, at the end, that we can actually go from a negative five, you know, in that breaking to a positive five, that this is not something I tell people if they're coming to me and they're in, in crisis because they don't need teachings in that moment. They need someone to listen to them and help them and feed them or whatever that they, they need the support to go through the process. But if people are in a place where they're more on an even keel, this is the teaching. The teaching is that crisis and brokenness and difficulty we can we can go down, but it's for the sake of ascending. It is the journey of Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White in the Lord of the Rings that he he battles the battle. Like he goes literally into the underworld and has he levels up through that experience. And it's it's the transformational power of difficulty, and that is a very important teaching in in Kabbalah. And there's several pages and teachings in the book that talk about that. I love that. And it's it's the suffering that we have to go through life, but not to shun it, not to avoid it, but actually take advantage of it and turn it into something else. We have it with Maslow, who, who had a lot of suffering, and then he comes up with these beautiful ideas of transcending and becoming uh, actualized. And Viktor Frankl, for me, the most, uh, the strongest example here of, of seeing the worst, the worst atrocities of humans, but coming up with such a beautiful philosophy and theory about life. And so to, to take that and not to complain or say, why me or why is this happening and so on, but instead of like changing, turning that into gold, basically, the like alchemy. Absolutely. And, and also it's okay to return back to neutral or to be broken for a while that not, sure. I don't, I, sometimes people feel pressured around these teachings. No, it's, yeah. it's about the hope, the potential. And so, but the, the goal really is to be present with our experience, find the supports that we need. If we need them, I don't mean just outside supports. It's sometimes it's inside supports, self-soothing and nourishment. Actually mm -hmm. distraction can be helpful sometimes uh, or just, but being resourced, having good food and sleeping well, but we can go from a broken state and, and to, to really moving beyond and to grow through the process. And, and, and between, if, that, if that's our orientation, we, we're also sprinkling in uh, moments of just joy and bliss and well-being, that, that's a pretty good formula for, uh, for a holistic journey and a holistic spiritual life. Yeah, and holistic is what uh, my podcast is all about, too, of like taking all those elements that self-care is an important part that people talk about that. And if if it gives you pleasure, as long as it doesn't hurt other people and so on, that's fine. You know, and go have that cupcake that you you long for and so on. Break your diet occasionally like that kind of uh, just soothing yourself, as you're saying. But I'm also curious what led you on this specific path, because uh uh, I know for me, it's like as, as a teen, I was always like, uh, I, I read Russian literature and I was like, I thought about death and like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky and all so on. And, uh, and so that really got me on a quest and led me to 
different paths and also like sometimes you get lost in those but then you find your way back and so on but what was the the driving force for you to to get where you are at the, to 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 become an ordained rabbi as well well it started with just passion i when i was first exposed to jewish spirituality when i was 16 years old it was something woke up inside mm -hmm. of me and I had never felt that part of myself before. And it was just, I had a new love. All of the other things I was interested to that point paled in comparison. And I followed that passion in, in a frenzy and I got so into it that I overwhelmed myself. I had one of these moments where I lifted too much weight in the spiritual gym and I had, I was injured. And it took me a little while to figure out what had happened and how to recover. And through that recovery, I learned about grounded spirituality through transpersonal psychology, in fact. And simultaneously, I was also studying a lot of religious history in university and really deconstructing my own religion. So I, by the end of that process, I was a universalist and I went to this Buddhist-inspired university for a world religions master's. And when I was there, I had this call from beyond. It was this spiritual experience. I think I was finally ready to handle it. And it sort of threw me for a loop. It was I was trying to like move out of my tradition and into the world landscape. And there was something that said, no, you should do this in a Jewish way. And that's it took me five years basically to turn the corner and say, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to go to rabbinical school. And I didn't quite know why when I went there, but I just had to. I mean, it was more grounded than that. I had a wife and a child at this point, and we all decided together. But it was it was it was kind of an adventure. And I after a few years in rabbinical school and I could really learn how to decode the texts in their original language, I found this whole treasure trove of largely unknown and some of it untra previously untranslated grounded spirituality articulated through a Jewish mystical way. And I knew that I had to I had to write this and I had to work on it. And that was that was a big part of the journey, a combination of passion, messing up and hurting myself, yeah. uh, learning how to be me in a fully grounded and integrated way. I mean, fully, I don't mean I've completed the work. I still struggle. Yeah, this is part of, I teach groundedness partly because I need it too. Mm -hmm. And and then following a combination of getting these calls and then learning how to navigate that in a way that's going to be tangible and real and possible. And then kind of turning that around my seeking, becoming teaching and wanting to share that with a broader audience. That is wonderful. And I think we're, we're driven often by perfection and becoming, you say, I'm a perfectionist and I want to reach perfection, but I think that's overrated. And uh, I, I find that kind of bland, the perfection itself. It's really that journey, right? It's like, once you get there, it's like, okay, well, what happens now, as we were saying? So really enjoy that journey, but also see the increases we're making, the connections we're making, that when I read a text now and I reread it years later and so on, that there's a different perspective on it. And it's like, I, that never resonated in the way it does now than it did in the past, for example. And uh, that aliveness of being alive and really choosing life over uh, uh, just uh, rituals or empty uh, like actions that we have and really like fully embodying it, embodying spirituality in our, in, in our everyday moment to moment, everyday life. I think that is hugely important. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The it's it's the journey is the path in that sense. The the journey is the destination, I guess. And for me, I, I struggle with perfectionism as well. Like I know the the desire, yeah. but there's something I keep coming back to Shabbat in this conversation, which is yeah, yeah. I think wonderful because I see it's such an important teaching right now for in, in general. So many of us are overwrought and burned out, and it's 
there is a sense of, I'm going to clean my house. I'm going to cook this food in advance. I'm going to get everything ready. And then when it starts, it's all good. Anything that hasn't been perfected in that for the preparation, it's it's fine. It's good. I'm just going to treat the world just like I'm going to treat myself. That's one of the teachings in Embodied Kabbalah. It's the idea that in that Shabbat mindset, the human, the, the our individual self, we're whole. We've made it. Even if we have parts of us that need work, we're going to just do our best to celebrate all that we are. And in that sense, we can have a moment or a day or 30 minutes or whatever of perfection and of of, of goodness all around just in, a, in that mindset and try to live as though the world is complete. So I, I believe there's a way that we can find moments to include these impulses within us, even if most of the time we're, we're yeah, let's give up on the idea of perfectionism. Let's, let's just work on what we have uh, because- the journey really is where so much of the beauty takes place. And to start small and to start with yourself. And a lot of people are trying to change society, but they have to change themselves first. And so that that then they will make a tremendous impact. And uh, we, we are too focused on, on other things than ourselves often. And I think just get be kind to yourself and you will be kind to others. I mean, the, the, that's that's the same thing, but you can't have uh, just one or the other. I agree. Yeah, I think it all comes down to balance. That if someone is working on repairing the world, there's a, a term in Hebrew, tikkun olam, repairing the world or helping the world, healing the world, and they haven't done the inner work, let's say at all, they're probably going to be healing their projection of the world or attempting and they're going to be, it's a very difficult thing to actually do that kind of societal change work if we don't know who we are on a yeah. deep level. And similarly, some people spend so much time finding out who they are that they're not living in the world anymore. That's true. And too. so that That's both can happen. And, and ideally we are living a combination of the inner path and the outer path and finding that, that balance and harmony between them, because we really need both to be complete. And some people are going to be more of the inner types and some are going to be more of the outer and we all, we're all different, but mm -hmm. essentially we need to be finding the ways that we can find that harmony and, and connection uh, as who we are in this world today yeah within the cosmos and just like seeing us uh, yes. part of the whole we're not isolated we're not uh, uh, um, secluded from others we there it is there's this connection and we we need that as you say connection harmony those are very important words i think mm -hmm. and and sometimes in order to get there we need to be truthful and bold and and cause temporary disagreements and that's great too that's yeah, great too that's but, necessary. but i think yeah. Like like what Martin Luther King uh, would say that mm -hmm. the moral arc of the universe is is long, but it bends towards justice. I believe that there are times when we really need to fight, so to speak. I hope it's more uh, metaphysically maybe or emotionally <laughs> than physically. I'm really not uh, promoting violence physically ever, but there are moments when things do break down and that's part of a larger process. But I am of the opinion that our universe, our world is a, is a wonderfully told and rich story that has moments of great crisis and who knows, but, but we're heading overall towards something good. This is the nature of our world. It's the nature of humanity, even though it's not always apparent. Exactly. Thank you so much for such an enlightening uh, discussion and conversations. I want to remind everyone, uh, Rabbi Matthew Ponak, uh, your book is Embodied Kabbalah, Jewish Mysticism for All People. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your insights here on the Rash's world. Thank you, Rash. It's been a delightful pleasure getting to know you. Same here.